MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This time, a former Suns player who you might remember as T-Rex. More video in just a moment, but this is Rex Chapman's mugshot, and we are learning a lot more about the charges. But I don't remember another positive thing, and it's because of how I dealt with it. One moment ended it for me. No, I don't party, right? I don't waste my high on anybody else. It's mine and mine alone. And if I can't be high, I want to be dead. That's where I was. My attic brain heard not only are you a terrible football player but you are a awful human being welcome to charges i'm your host rex chapman today on the podcast we have a guest who in a lot of ways should be an inspiration to people but we'll get into why later today we welcome a former charger to charges for those people who don't know ryan leaf was a football prodigy an absolute stud in high school. From a small town in Montana, he's literally the only person from Montana to be drafted in the first round of the modern day NFL. He went to Washington State and finished third in the Heisman race behind future Hall of Famers, Charles Woodson and Peyton Manning. Ryan became the number two pick in the 1998 NFL draft behind Peyton Manning to the then San Diego Chargers. He started his career 2-0, the first rookie to do that in 16 years, the first rookie since John Elway. So in almost every way, a pure stud, absolute talent. But as we all know, it isn't just physical ability that matters in life or sports. There are so many other factors to consider, mental health, surroundings, expectations. And today, we're going to talk with Ryan about his incredible rise and then what happens when things don't go as expected or as anticipated. Also, Ryan and I share a history with painkillers and opioids we'll talk about. If you or a loved one is struggling, I want you to know there's help out there, and we're here for you. You are not alone. Charges. Man, Ryan, Ryan Leaf, I'm honored, really, to have you join here today. I know that this, some of this stuff, it's not comfortable or pleasant to talk about, uh, but man, I'm excited to to talk to you today. Well, I think I think once you 
find acceptance in it. It's emotionally draining. Don't get me wrong, but you know, it's so freeing to tell your truth. It just is now. Um, you're not telling lies. You're not covering things up. You're just, this is who I am. I'm okay with it. You don't like it. You know, too bad. Well put. You know, I obviously, I knew you from football watching. You were kind of coming in as I was exiting my pro career. So I followed you as a college player and then on into the pros. And then, of course, you know, with things that went on afterwards. But as I was reading up on you the last few weeks, um, so much of it really resonated with me. And I, you're from Great Falls, Montana. How big is Great Falls? Uh, it's it's small. You know, it's it's small for anywhere else. It's fairly large for Montana. I think around sixty five thousand people. It's about the same. I grew up in Owensboro, Kentucky, in a town of about fifty five, sixty thousand people, and it was a great sports town. But from a very young age, I was like the best, you know, in the grade and in the school and all of that. And I lived my whole life by the stat sheet and whether we won or lost. And that was my whole identity. So when I was, you know, was studying up on some of your stuff, we're both from, you know, small states. You know, what has football meant to you? What does it still mean to you? And uh, could you paint a picture for Great Falls for the listeners who, you know, have no idea what it might look like? It's a really uh, introverted, conservative, blue-collar undiverse town. And to your point, you know, I was far and away the best athlete uh, they had seen, I don't know, maybe ever. I'm the only Montanan that's ever been drafted in the first round of the NFL draft ever. There are more first round draft picks in the Manning family than the whole state of wow. Montana ever. So wow. I didn't have a trailblazer. I just wanted to get out. And I thought being a success was to get out of that small town and be a professional athlete, whatever that looked like. Basketball was it for me for so long. I mean, I just, I loved I it. I saw your jump shot. I saw your jump shot. And I could jump, you know, for a white boy. Jalen Rose was my hero. I wore, you know, the gold shorts down to my ankles. I shaved my head. I had the black socks, you know. That didn't fit very well in, in Montana. My mom was so worried about what other people thought. She kind of really shamed me uh, from a young age. What do you think made you do that? And I'm asking because I it sounds really familiar. But what made you sort of because you're going to stand out if you do that? What do you think that was about? I didn't necessarily think I would. I, I just didn't see it that way. I love Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, you know. And so th that's who I envisioned who I was. And. When I saw Kobe Bryant dunk for the first time and turn himself into like a 747 going down the court, I remember when I tried that for the first time, the damn coach pulled me off the side and benched me. <laughs> you know, it just, I just was, I guess, ahead of my time. You know, they just wanted their star athletes to be good at the sport and just shut up and dribble, essentially. And I was, I've never been that guy, I guess. I just, you know, I was confident in myself and I, had, I, I was a drug addict long before I ever took a drug. I just, the fear, the judgment, all the things that exist. My first drug of choice was just competition. Had to win at anything and everything, and I would embarrass you in the process. That's how I won. If you treated me poorly, you know, I was kind of from the poor side of the river. Um, I didn't really want for anything. My parents did a tremendous job, but I mean, there was another side of the river where the country club was and where those kids were, and I wasn't part of that group. I feel so much of that, man. Uh, I think back, and there are so many parallels. How did the people in Great Falls treat you? I'm sure you were a star all through, what, middle school, high school? My fans and um, my coaches, you know, they liked it because I, we would win. The state didn't, really. They didn't understand it. I remember my basketball coach was out standing out in front uh, during the JV game watching it play in a gentleman, we were on the road, and a gentleman came walking up and asked Coach McLean, who was our head coach, whether that Leaf boy was playing tonight. And Coach <laughs> McLean said, said, yeah, yeah, he's going to be playing. You know, that's what he does. He's like, oh, that's great. I just came here to boo his ass, you know. And uh, 
And Coach McLean couldn't understand it. Like, like I rebounded hard. I played defense. I scored. Um, I could dunk. There wasn't many guys who could dunk in the state of Montana. I could shoot from distance. And I loved to win, you know. Maybe I didn't act appropriately when, I, when we lost, you know, because I was so distraught. Uh, and I looked at other guys like, why didn't you give it everything you had like I did? Because it just wasn't as important to them, you know. And I understand that now, but... At the time, I was like, what the, what's wrong with you? Were you mature early? You look like a different species out there. That You're flying around the court, and you're playing against a bunch of small white guys. And I know what that felt like, but you looked. You know, did you feel that way? I could jump. I was athletic, and I could jump, and I loved to compete. But I was, I mean, I was 6'4", 165 pounds. So, I, I mean, I wasn't like, I wasn't a beast or anything, you know. It was a tall, lanky, you know, string bean that was uh rolling around the state of montana and then and then we won a state championship in football my junior year and i was named the starter and i and all of a sudden i started getting recruited by like every college in the country for football and i'm like i mean i guess i like quarterback that's you know but (laughs) why not you know why not so (laughs) i put on a few extra pounds and and away we ran that's amazing um you know i think back to growing up, I had my circle of friends, and and there's a fine line. I obviously you've heard the people they've referred to you as an asshole. What gets me is that every talent scout ever, they're looking for a guy or an athlete that's got a little asshole in him, that's got a little prick in him, right? That's supposed to be a good thing, because I think back and for sure I didn't really have it off of the court, but everything that I was competing on ping pong, it didn't matter. You know, I was trying to win. And at all costs, I was able to shut that off in pretty much every other area, though. Me too. I was this quiet introvert off the court. And guess what? All the people that talked to the media and heard that I was an asshole, those weren't my real friends. None of my real friends would have ever said that. The guys that I, that I actually shared with and spent my time with and who knew who I was and knew the fragile state of my, you know, my consciousness, you know, they would have never said that. What's so shameful about it is, is that I'm a kid, right? And like the state railed against me and shamed me. You know, when I was up for the Heisman Trophy, they did a poll and I finished fourth in my hometown. It just, it, it is what it is. But I had every opportunity to like, cause I, I was just a kid. These were just all, they were all adults, you know? And, and so I had every opportunity when things went well for me to come home and take the high road and make them a part of it. Like, make them a part of the journey and be like, you know what? Neither one of us knew what the hell we were doing. We were the first. I'm not going to hold that against you. Let's do this together. Let's go on a journey together as a town, as a state. But instead, I came home and was like, I fucking told you. I told you. You all can go fuck off, all right? I am a god, and you are about to watch it play out. And that's... What a mindset to have. And that's just the ego. That's the ego monster that just took over. And like the resentment, that's the resentment. I resented them so much that I was willing to, you know, rail against them rather than to, you know, taking the high road and showing love. That's, that's the hardest thing to do. Yeah, man. And especially when you're, you know, you're not, we're kind of wired to compete and, uh, you know, showing that humility and vulnerable, being vulnerable it took me a long time, man. It just did. How did you end up at Washington State? Mike Price, the head coach. You know, I was recruited by pretty much everybody. He called the day of the Rose Bowl, 1994, January 1st, 1994. Asked what I was doing. I told him I was watching the Rose Bowl. It was UCLA and Wisconsin playing. And he just said, hey, I'll make you a deal, Ryan. You come to Washington State. You and I will play in that game together. And I just, I bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. You know, I hadn't done any research. I hadn't realized I hadn't been there since 1931. Um, right. You know, if were you like me, I, I promise when I got to college, I didn't know nor care about anybody else. Like Pat Riley played here. Didn't know that. Just thought he yeah. was the coach of the Lakers. And I, I can remember thinking, just thinking, I never said it, but I can remember thinking, oh, you guys haven't seen anything like me, apparently. And so... I'm telling you, I had this mindset. People had never seen a, a guy run and jump like me. And I wondered, did you feel much the same in football? Because, you know, your Heisman season, dude, you had, for the most part, better numbers than Peyton. Uh, you end up finishing behind Charles Woodson. No shame in that. 
Um, what was that season like for you on the field? Dream come true. This year, a tremendous crop of quarterback talent in the Pac-10 may be the deepest ever. The guy at the top of that class was certainly Ryan Leaf. An athlete first, football player second, and quarterback third. Tough, aggressive, emotional, symbolic of his feisty Cougar compadres. Every Cougar that's ever gone to school at Washington State, it's their goal to go to the Rose Bowl, and he's taken us to the Rose Bowl. Um, we used to compare him to Drew Bledsoe. Now everybody's going to be compared to Ryan Leaf. Dream come true. It was easy. Just step on the field, and we kind of had our way with everybody. We were prepared. We knew what we were doing. We had come together as a team. We were kind of, you know, a bunch of players that were from the island of misfit toys, guys from JCs and who had problems in high school that probably could have gone to USC and things like that from Southern California. And we ended up getting them. And I mean, just we just played so well together. There was 26 seniors on the team. Opened the year against UCLA and USC, beat them both, and we were just off and running. It was it was special. Best year of my life when it came to competing with the, the guys I competed with. Um, so much fun. So much fun. What stands, any any specific plays stand out for you or teammates in the moment that you think about uh, when you think back about, you know, being on that national stage? Yeah, my offensive linemen. Two of them were walk-ons. Uh, my five wide receivers, they called themselves the Fab Five. Uh, you know, my old lineman felt jealous, so they nicknamed themselves the Fat Five. Um, <laughs> nice. You know, and then nice. I had, we had a tight end, a running back, and myself. You know, we were balanced. We averaged 550 yards of offense, 330, 220 rushing. We were, we were ahead of our time in what we were doing on, as an offense. I led the nation in passing. I just found that out like a year ago doing one of my radio shows. Someone brought that to my attention. I'm like, you serious? Yeah, don't poo-poo that, man. That's big shit. Peyton Manning was was in that draft class, and I still Come led the on, nation bro. in passing. That's amazing, cool. amazing. No, it was a great year. Everything played out like we, you know, we wanted it to. We didn't quite win the the game, but there was a controversial ending, a, a rule change because of it, uh, and spiking the ball with the amount of time left on the clock. And so, Coach Price always tells everybody that we didn't lose that game. We just ran out of time, and I, yeah. I, I couldn't agree with him more. I want to ask you how you've handled the fame portion of your college career. I know it was a bit of a mixed bag for me. And sometimes I liken it to, you know, being a child actor. Because, you know, if you're, if you're on a show from the time you're 8 to 12, the world knows you like that. And you're kind of, that's what they think of you. And you have a chance that, you know, you have an arrested development. And I for sure, from age 15 to 34, Five, maybe 45. How did you handle that fame in college? There was a joke. There was a joke that Sports Illustrated ran. What's the difference between God and Ryan Leaf? God doesn't think he's Ryan Leaf. And uh, <laughs> I thought I'm it was not, hilarious. I'd not right? heard it. See, and you can laugh at it now. Yeah, I just thought I was better. I just thought I was a better person than you because I could play this silly game that made me a better person, which is, and you're exactly it's right. Out, it's outrageous. Yeah. It was arrested development. Probably like 13 years old when I figured out that I had this golden arm that could put me on a pedestal and I could get away with things that other people couldn't and the consequences weren't the same. And that's where my development stopped. And so my maturity level was like that of a 13-year-old. So when I went into the NFL and I was the second overall pick and I was given $31 million, that was like giving $31 million to a 13-year-old. That's how right. I would liken it to it. And it was, right. that's just a recipe for disaster, period. And that's exactly what ensued. Yeah. Yeah. I get it, man. I do. Uh, when did you know you were ready for the draft? You know, I started hearing, you know, scouts when they come talk about how it was between me and Peyton. And I was just like, how's that possible? I'm really? Um, <laughs> were you that taken aback by it? I am walking around campus wearing a Danny Warfel jersey. You know, I'm. I'm and I'm about to be in the same sentence as him in terms of the Heisman Trophy, you know? So right. I, I, it was a whirlwind, man. And then once it became a realization, like, oh, so this is, this, yeah, this is real. I'm going to be the first or second pick in the NFL draft. Then I was like, okay, that's about right. That's how it's supposed to be, and I'm going to act accordingly. I could really see a shift after the Heisman Trophy to right before the Rose Bowl was played in, like, some interviews that I saw 
I could see this behavior start to exhibit more. The asshole uh, prick was starting to really come out publicly. When I go back and I look at these interviews and stuff like that, just flippant uh, answers, kind of like a petulant child and just like, you know, dismissive of everybody and everything. Like if I got a question from a reporter that seemed nonsensical in my mind, I'd just look at them like they were crazy. Like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Don't you know who I am? This is not worth my time. Go away. It's hard to say it. But it's so true that it's just like you cannot not say that that's the truth. And it doesn't cost me anything to to be vulnerable and transparent about it now because it happened and everybody saw it like because it was public, you know. I can only imagine. And look, I had depression and I'm sure mental illness growing up. I quit my high school team, you know, as the best player in the state, probably. You know, I was all over the map. I would get emotional. I yeah, I was, de- I was dealing with undiagnosed mental health disorders that never knew about, you know. Talk a minute about uh, your desire to go to San Diego, all the hype that was going into the draft, your rookie season. Well, I played on the West Coast on the Pac-10 I had family who lived in Encinitas, which was just a suburb of San Diego. And, you know, I was just like, who wouldn't want to live on the beach in the sun, the babes, the money, and not in the middle of the Midwest in Indianapolis? Uh, I wasn't looking at the right things. I wasn't looking at that Marshall Falk was in the backfield and Marvin Harrison was out on the perimeter. I wasn't looking at the right things. I just thought I was good enough flat out good enough that I was going to walk in there and do exactly what I did. But you don't understand this is the 1% of the 1%. It's just, it's a different animal. And unless you're willing to work at it from Sunday to Sunday, like every one of us has talent. Everybody who gets drafted and gets to that point has talent. Some of us a little bit more than the other. Otherwise you wouldn't get drafted as high, but man, you don't put in the work from Sunday to Sunday. It It ain't happening. That it makes me think back, and the year that I left college and went to the NBA, um, I went early. Long story: we were going on probation, uh, but uh, I left early, and so I was the youngest player in the league my rookie year. And I just remember going, you know, probably went and visited ten of the top teams that were going to be in the draft lottery, and. I just remember feeling like a fraud, like I'm pretending to be a grown-up here. I would go in, I was wearing a suit that I'd just gotten. I remember being exhausted at the end of the day, you know, after going having to sit with the owner and the GM and pretend to be a fucking adult. I felt like a 14-year-old. And I wonder if, you know, because I've seen some of your interviews around that time and, and, you know, knowing what we know now, you know, it fills in some of the blanks. But I just wonder, you know, did you feel some of that going on? Yeah, I was this uh, adolescent with a egomaniac with a self-esteem problem is what it was. You know, I never felt... Why the self-esteem problem, Ryan? I'd just been shamed my whole life from so many people, starting with my mother to my whole state, to the media. So I just... You know, I didn't feel comfortable. I thought I was an overweight quarterback. I thought I was kind of like chubby and fat and not attractive. And so I, it was just, it was all a persona. It was not, never really me. There was only a few people that ever really truly got to know who Ryan was. And did you know who you were? No, no idea. You know, I was this football player. That's, that's all I was worth. Um, I felt like that was my worth and my identity was a football If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes 
that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Player. I get it, man. Do you ever think there was a chance uh, you could have been successful in the NFL, you know, based on the person you were at the time and how the world had treated you at that point? Maybe, you know, maybe if I get with the right franchise that just like accountability was at the forefront, like, hey, you are not going to play. I don't care how good you are. You're not going to play until you are accountable for your actions and we're going to go figure this out. I really think there are some organizations that are like that systemically, Pittsburgh Steelers for one of them. But I also think that, and you know, you've heard this plenty of times in recovery, like no matter where you go, there you are. Yeah. You know, I was the problem. Um, So it may have been, my character defects may have been hidden longer, let's say in Indianapolis, if I went number one. But don't forget, Peyton threw the most interceptions ever for a rookie. They only won three games. I won that same amount of games starting as Peyton did in my rookie year. Through less interceptions, not as many touchdowns, of course. Um, I don't know how I could have dealt with the failure of being yeah. three and thirteen or throwing that many interceptions. Right? He learned how to deal with failure in a healthy way. Hey, bro. He also had a dad that that was the family business, and just losing like my buddy, and failing. And losing and failing. But he played in the NFL and he went through all that stuff. And he is like Stefan and Seth Curry. They grew up around it. And they know, yeah. you know, so you can't be hard on yourself about that. Do you remember a specific time or moment that the game started being less fun for you? Well, I mean, I can give you the exact moment my career ended. And it was at Kansas City. We were 2-0. and A rookie quarterback hadn't won his first two starts since 1983 in John Elway. And we walked into Kansas City in Arrowhead. And I was in the hospital all week with a staph infection, and I, my mom begged me not to play. And I just, I thought the coolest thing, right? I'd come out of the hospital, I'd take my new team on the road at Kansas City against the likes of Derek Thomas and in that defense, and mm-hmm. James Hasty and Rich Gannon, and we beat the Chiefs on, on the road. Yeah, uh, be what careful a great story. what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I completed my first pass, played the worst game of my life. And it's not because I played poorly. You know, every rookie has a come-to-Jesus moment in the NFL. It's how I dealt with it. How I reacted to a reporter after the game, a cameraman that then got carried over to the next day, 
by one of the beat writers who wrote about it and I confronted it in the locker room. And then there's the video when the internet had just started. It was like one of the first viral videos, I really think. Uh, you know, you got Jim Everett flying across the table at Jim Rome and you got me yelling at this reporter like a petulant child being pulled away by Junior Seau into the shower to cool off. And then I don't remember a positive thing and I would go on and play for four more years uh, with different teams but I don't remember another positive thing. And it's because of how I dealt with it. One moment ended it for me because of how I dealt with failure. Have you ever talked to him, the reporter? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've had, I've made my amends uh, to him. Jay Posner is his name. Okay. You know, just doing his job. I mean, he, he did kind of bait me a little bit. But again, you know, I was, I was going to tell him, you know, how it was. I was going to intimidate um, yeah, so kind of big yeah. boyed him, got up over the top, which is what we assholes do. Don't talk to me, all right? Knock it off. I appreciate your honesty, uh, Ryan. I, I much the same. I was fortunate that well, I didn't play football. <laughs> I didn't never never been able to make it with that sport, but I was fortunate to be traded and be able to handle my stuff enough emotionally where I had a second team you know, that I went to because I was a kid, my first stop. And if I could have just played basketball and never had to talk to the media at all, oh, just sign me up. The problem is- I figured is, it out, Rex. Yeah? Yeah, Jim Harbaugh was my quarter, my backup quarterback year three. He taught me how to be a professional. I went on to Tampa Bay with Tony Dungy, Brad Johnson, and that team, and that defense, and I learned how to be a professional and be a good teammate. Um, problem was I'd wrecked my wrist that third year in San Diego falling on the baseball diamond. And so my talent wasn't as good and my talents what could carry me. You could feel a difference, uh, throwing the ball. Oh yeah. It still pops out a joint. Yeah. Okay. So on deep balls, touch balls, or just in general, anytime that, that, uh, I had to put any kind of velocity on it or, t I mean, it just, it was called a scaphoid lunate disassociation. So essentially this ligament on the upper part of your wrist would dislocate. And my Tampa Bay teammates, uh, Rondé Barber, told CBS a story about it back in the days. Like we were playing in a preseason game and they look out at me and I throw this out route and I, in between plays, I'm, I'm running to the sideline, like pounding my hand and wrist against my thigh pad, trying to pop it back into play so I can play the next play, you know? And then that's where I kind of started you know, being given a lot of painkillers to get through well, the week. So I'm um, glad you brought that up. I was literally the next thing I was going to ask. When was the first time you, you received painkillers? In college. You know, I've had 15 surgeries, orthopedic and, and others. So, you know, the first thing I had was a shoulder surgery in college, and they gave me these uh, opiate painkillers afterwards. Mm -hmm. And uh, it worked, right? They killed the pain. That's exactly what their name is. I mean, I liked it. And now I didn't abuse it or anything, and um, but I knew it worked. And I was really like, I didn't drink in high school. I didn't drink till my 18th birthday. I really didn't drink in college except, except binge drinking just to feel comfortable with people in moments. And um, never did drugs, you know, didn't smoke weed, nothing. Uh, I was, I thought people that did all that stuff was morally corrupt. So it was just really evident or prevalent at the NFL level. You get on the plane after a game, they give you a couple pills and a couple cans of beer. And you know, you, you take that edge off on the way home. You take pills till about Wednesday and then you take, you wean off them and get ready to play by Sunday. And that was just a ritual. Wasn't abusing them. Didn't realize that my brain wiring had like, you know, really liked it because competition was still the drug of choice always has been. So when I walked away, from the NFL on my final stop in Seattle because I was unwilling to tell my head coach that I was incredibly depressed. I was tired. I was lazy. I felt lazy. I was sad all the time. I didn't know what was wrong. I just chose to, uh, to quit. And so about three months after I quit or retired, I told people who retires at 27 years old, you know, um, I was in Vegas for a fight because I still needed people to know that I was still a success. I had the money, the power, the prestige. You know, prestige was a little tarnished, of course, with not being in the league anymore. But come on, second pick. Like money was 
ultimately the that was the end all be all. So was that a fight Tyson fight? They were announcing celebrities in the audience. The MC was. They announced Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Charles Barkley, Dr. Dre. You know, the audience cheered and clapped, and the MC there at the MGM Grand announced my name. And like the whole auditorium just booed and hissed. And it's not like that hadn't happened before, right? I mean, you play football, you're on the opposing team's field, but you're wearing armor. You got a helmet on it. This, my attic brain heard, not only are you a terrible football player, but you are a awful human being. That's what I heard. And so sure enough, that night, uh, we were going to go to parties where there were Super Bowl champs and Hall of Famers and why I always felt judged and less than and like I didn't belong. An acquaintance of mine offered me some Vicodin and I mixed him with the alcohol I was drinking. This would be the first time that I abused it. And I didn't feel any of that. I didn't feel that judgment. I didn't feel that fear. I didn't feel that less than. I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel better, but it turns out I was just searching for that feeling of not feeling any of the feelings that I had been feeling for so long. I just wanted to numb out. And that night changed. Like that would be the next eight years of my life chasing that initial high from that night of not feeling it. So you, you can pinpoint it. You feel like that's the first time you thought I, well, you couldn't have thought right away I have a problem. No, no. I still, I didn't think I had a problem for a long time. I thought I was How doing long? the wrong thing the right way. Probably years, three years probably. Yeah. Okay. So you were just self-medicating, right? Yep. I just, I wasn't seeing a therapist. I was self-medicating, right. doing the, I was going to doctors, you know, telling them I was in pain, which Doctor shopping. I was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which I was. Yeah. I was in some sort of physical pain, but mostly I was in emotional pain. It's pretty amazing, especially back during that time. I'm, you know, I'm familiar with it. It's pretty amazing. And again, this is, goes to ego and addiction and everything. Amazing. The doctors, amount of doctors, you can just cold call, drop your name and we'll give you the medicine, right? Yeah, you just, I mean, you come in with x-rays and show you got beat up for a living, and then you manipulate the situation the best you can, and they got kids, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'll sign a bunch of autographs for your kids, right. no problem. Of course. You're gonna give me a script for 90 with five refills? refills okay, great, please. yeah. No. More refills, please. In Montana, Leaf was accused of burglary and drug activity. In a plea deal, he pled guilty to the charges and agreed to enter a drug treatment program. Movie star or sports star, the rules are the same for everybody. He's had enough chances, and I hope the judge will, will send him to prison. James Farron says he's working to put the former NFL quarterback and WT quarterback's coach behind bars for the charges he pled guilty to in Randall County. When you get arrested the first time, Ryan, you're taking pills from college kids to feed your addiction. You know, you're working there. They're not, you know, you're, I don't even think they were paying you at the time. You were just kind of doing it to get back into the game. And it seemed like, for all intents and purposes, you were kind of thriving there. Um, what was, was happening in your, you know, the, the what kids, was happening the, in your life though at that point? I was an incredible mess. Just, uh, hadn't, you know, coached these kids up and they were just excelling, leading the nation and passing and, we were winning and are you partying at night and stuff no i don't party right i don't waste my high on anybody else it's mine and mine alone right so i want to be alone i don't want anybody else to see um i want to treasure it it's like a relationship like i would say no to dates with beautiful women because i had a night set with my pills i wanted that all to myself and i didn't want anybody to know i was doing it you know that's the bigger thing right and so i just self-medicated and just kept doing it until I couldn't do it anymore. And then I had to take advantage of these kids, you know, who looked up to me and respected me. I was this pro football player and they're playing for a division two football team and they just got hurt. And now here's coach leaf at my door going, Hey, can I have some of those pills? I'm my, my wrist is really hurting. What, what do they do? You know, um, they give you some and then they, they do the only thing they can do is they call their parents. They're 18 and 19 years old and they go, mom and dad, I don't know what to do. And mom and dad do the right thing. You know, they contact my employer now, they also send an anonymous email to ESPN too, but there's consequences to your actions and mine are public consequences. And it probably is the biggest reason why I'm here in front of you. It's probably saved my life because there are a lot of us out there that are going through the same things you and I went through, but weren't held accountable and they just disappear in the shadows and they're gone. And uh, so a lot of people, you know, compliment me about how I did it in the public eye. And I'm like, that saved my life, you know? If it was isolating all by myself, I would have just died. 
somewhere and no one would have known. My friends often say the same. They say, you know, something had to happen. You were going to die. And, you know, thank goodness something happened. So the second time you get arrested, though, seven-year sentence, uh, two years in jail. 32 months, actually three years. Three year, almost three years in jail. Uh, what was it like in prison? How did you survive it? Adult daycare. Not a deterrent. A relief. Didn't go outside. A relief. Please continue. Well, I was just, every day I'd wake up and do I have pills? And if I didn't, how can I get them? You know? And if I can't be high, I want to be dead. That's where I was. It's so crazy to think that's where I was. And I got to remember it. I have to remember it. Otherwise, it's, but it's just, it's just shockingly because I, I wake up every morning now and I'm just like, I choose to be happy. You know, I can choose that. Even if it's a bad day and bad shit happens and life isn't fair and we're going through COVID and I lose my job and all this stuff. Like, I, I just, I can get up, meditate and pray, go for a little hike, feel therapeutic in nature, find my higher power and choose to be happy. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't go a day without numbing myself out and altering my mood. And I clamored every night in the mirror for somebody to help me. And finally, my higher power just, just said, you don't get it, dude. So I'm going to send the sheriff's department to help you save your life. And that's what happened. So go through a little bit of uh, you know what was going on in your mind. You had gone to some open houses. You uh, had broken into a couple places. And this is in your hometown, hometown, right? Yeah, people don't lock their doors. So you just go up and knock on, on the outskirts of farmhouses and, you know, Nine times out of 10, there'll be some pills in the medicine cabinet or in the cabinet in the kitchen. And I didn't go around and collect. As soon as I got them in my hand, like sure, the psychological effect. Yeah, I went home. You know, I was done. Okay, my day's over. Now I don't have to feel anything for the rest of the day. I'll sleep and I'll go back at it again tomorrow. Such as, I mean, in the state of Montana, how I didn't get shot in somebody's house, you know. I remember walking into a house one time and going into a bedroom and there was this man asleep on his bed. And I was just like so taken aback because I had like screamed when I walked in the house, like, anybody here? Anybody here? You know, and then there was a ton of pills in there. So now I know he was probably an opiate addict and was probably just passed out, you know? So it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So um, until you were sentenced, you were still using the pills. And so when you went in, you were no, I never, to kind I, I of never, detox I never, or no? I never bonded out. I got arrested and I never got out. So Okay. So you had to have... You know, you're going through this withdrawal. I bonded out the first time. I got rearrested uh, like 48 hours later. And this time they pulled my bond. Texas revoked my probation from when being arrested down there. And I was stuck there. My parents wouldn't bail me out, which was incredibly hard on their part. I can only imagine my mom wanted to take care of her son, but she was so fearful. And at this point, financially struggling? Yeah, I was broke. Okay. I was broke. Yeah. I had lost every single dollar. My credit score was like 500. I was, uh, yeah. I've been there, man. I've been there. Um, so you're going in and you go straight in. And so now you're having to withdraw by yourself. This is not a place they're going to. But I didn't even, I was taking it one time a day at like dinner time, like, you know, 100 milligrams, enough to get 100 milligrams. I mean, whether that, if they were tens or fives, they either had to take 20 or, or 10, right? And the doctor in prison just said the withdrawal wasn't as bad because it was like it wasn't like all day long, just taking pills all day long to maintain. It was like this one thing. So, you know, I overdosed the night I went in. They didn't know, but I was just a mess. And I don't remember anything for about two days. I had gone to court. My mugshot, of course, looks like, you know, Tiger Woods's. And I just like knew immediately. I was like, dude, I know what that dude's on. Exactly what I was on. And then like three days later, I was just like, I was so fearful. The psychology of the withdrawal, you know, was so fearful about, it. of course, there was some sweating at night a couple of times, but I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't incredibly bad. Like I've seen it and I've heard it to be, but my mind, my mind was still running like a rabbit or a rat in a maze. You know, I was like, I need to get out of here. I need to figure out a way to get out of here, get as many pills as I can ride until the wheels fall off. That's all. There's nothing else out there. You know, it was, I just still wanted to die or be high and I couldn't do it in there in solitary confinement. And then I went through the sentencing process. I pled guilty. You know, I just, just a ton of accountability in my message to the judge. I don't know where the hell that came from. 
I was just like, warehouse me. And uh, that's what he did. And he said it. I'm going to warehouse you. I'm going to give you a number. And it was the first time I ever felt marginalized in my life. I'm both humiliated and embarrassed with the situation, not only for myself, um, especially for my family, and it seems to this community. Um, I found that eight days in jail has been somewhat of a sanctuary. I've discussed you know, with my family, and they believe I've held them for ransom for 36 years. And I don't understand why I should have to do that anymore. I do believe that these 15 months will be productive for me. I don't believe that nine months of it from now is going to be any different than right now. Five or ten years of Brian pre-drama, my family, this community, particularly this nation, <laughs> maybe pure, pure bliss for people. I'm lazy, I'm dishonest, I'm selfish. These things are behaviors before my addiction kicked in. I hate that excuses like professional football or a brain tumor or those letters that I finally got to read about five days ago. They had a totally different, um, had totally different reactions than, than most people probably would have. I felt that they were all excuses. Well, uh, along those lines, based on your experience, you know, what are your feelings on the way we handle addiction in this country, the way we Terrible. criminalize it, the way we send people to prison and not to treatment? Um, you know, the ease with which somebody can get addicted and the lack of help there is for them. What are your thoughts? Well, the stigma. Stigma is what did it in the early 80s with the, you know, war on drugs with Nancy and Ronald Reagan. You know, that just... You know, that was the drug war. That just made it, ramped it up to a place where they built all these government agencies to, to control and task force and everything like that. And then they built these for-profit prisons, which I was in, and they incentivized judges and DAs to get prison time because they have contracts with the states that they needed to be 80% or 85% full. And if they're not, they're still going to pay the rate of it being that full. So it incentivizes them to, to send nonviolent drug offenders to prison because... You know, they need them full. They need the, the beds occupied. So there's a reason why we're the largest populated prison system in the world and are like, in comparison, one of the less populated. You know, there's a lot of things that are changing. Um, I, I've studied it a ton. I've tried to do some lobbying and, and get some bills passed and watch what Portugal has done, seen what Colorado has done around marijuana, and now what the state of Oregon has done around decriminalization of pretty much everything. And I think that's the answer. I really do. And, you know, I'll argue up and down with people about, you know, well, people will just be lined up around Walgreens to get Vicodin. And I'm like, not everybody's like me. You know, not everybody's like me. Right. You know I would do that because I'm a drug addict. You know, you can educate, you can tax, you can set up recovery and, and things like that. And you could end governmental oversight, the DEA and things like that wouldn't have to exist. Drug cartels would be limited. You know, like there's just a lot that could happen in a positive way. I really do believe that. The substance being out of my brain in prison has allowed me to articulate, I think, the brain tumor that I had cut out of my brain that was, was gonna, on my brain stem. I was going to ask you about that. In 2011, you had a tumor cut out. How'd that change your life? Well, I mean, as an athlete, you know, I get hurt. I find a doctor. He fixes it. I move forward. That's exactly the way I looked at it. But going through the radiation and like the chemo side of things, because they couldn't remove it all because it was intertwined in my brainstem and me losing my hair and feeling fatigued and achy and sick. And the doctor asking if he could prescribe me some painkillers and me not telling him anything. Um, it resulted in my relapse. I was 18 months sober. Um, he gave them to me December 1st, 2011. By March 30th, 2012, I was in prison because I'm a drug addict and I just felt I deserved it. So I didn't tell the doctor I had a problem before. And so I just can't have them. I just can't have them. That's the difference. I'm allergic. Uh, twins, same. I love them. And the second I took the first, I took Oxycontin to begin with. And the second I took it, I felt smarter, funnier, better, nicer, all of it. So I understand what that yearn is. I get it. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you know, I've said before, uh, and I'll, I'll say again, you're an inspiration, man. Uh, you had an incredible physical talent and ability to play a game. It made you famous and rich and all that, but you've constantly been dealt blows your whole life and career. Some of it from yourself, some from society and the world around you, I know. But here's what's inspiring. You don't quit. You keep bouncing back, finding new things to try, try to continue to be a better person. That's really admirable, Ryan. Really admirable. Well, what are you supposed to do? You know, like I've come to this realization, like, what am I supposed to do? I'm going to get up and I think there's a radical acceptance around being a flawed human being like everybody else trying to be better. So the only thing I can do is to get up and do the next right thing. Um, Because yesterday is something I can't control anymore. Take accountability for what I've done and just try to be part of the solution. And that's been the being of service, Rex, and you know this better than anybody, being of service is you remove yourself from the equation completely and you make it about somebody else and your life changes. It does. And that's the foundation of who I am and, and what I do now. It's cannot be about me ever again. What keeps you going? Is it that? I don't know what keeps me going, to be honest with you. You know, this past year, it's been difficult. Uh, there's been another arrest for something that that is a problem in this country with dealing with police. You know, when when you're having a mental health incident, my Anna and I are are trying to put a bill in place um, that when you call the police and there's a mental health incident happening, they don't send nine police officers who exacerbate the problem. They send a caseworker or somebody who can help because all I, all it did is make it worse. You know, I remember them pulling me into the police car and Anna like racing and following the car to the police station, trying to get them to stop. And them just like, we don't care what you want, ma'am. The state of California wants to prosecute. And then you lose everything. And you find out who your friends are, really. And I think it, 
I don't know if I thought I'd be grateful, you know, just about a year ago. But I tell you what, man, I'm incredibly grateful. I found out who my friends are, who know my values, know my character. Well, that's good. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't even, you know, this is the first time we've actually ever met. People might not know that, but uh, yeah. I know when that happened, I just reached out you and DM'd me. you. Yeah, yeah it was just yeah. like, hey, you know, hang in there. I don't know what's going on, but, uh, you know, you're never as bad as your worst moment, Ryan, if you learn from it, right? Well, that was that's the perfect example of like, you know, in our culture, cancel culture, A, and then me looking at it going, what was I? I'm the same guy as I was on May 21st as I am on May 22nd. I'm the exact same person. A flawed human being trying to be better every single day. Nothing's changed. Still wanting to help people. Still want to go forward. So what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to just pack it in? Say, fuck it. I'm done. You know, I tried. You know, I tried to get back out there and be be of service and be a better human being. You do it. There's no alternative. You just, you do it. Yeah, you do it. Some people don't do it, though, Ryan. And that's the thing. And so don't. Um, my, I'm just suggesting don't just shrug that off because I, I do remember sitting in at the worst moment of my life a couple times, sitting there and just being so disappointed in myself. Well, I tell you what, I think a lot of people thought I relapsed is what I think a lot of people thought. Oh, this most recent time you're talking. Yeah, and if I hadn't have been sober, I don't think I would have had the mindset to deal with something in a healthy, positive way, right? And then to then go through the rest of the year, which was probably one of the hardest years to stay sober and get my nine-year chip Absolutely. on April 1st. Congratulations. I mean, that, that just, thank you. That made it every bit more worthwhile. And I just decided in 2021 to take some more control back, you know, start my own show. If no one else was going to let me do it. That's what I was going to say. What, what made you want to do that? Well, you know, Rich Eisen has been an unbelievable support of mine. Every time he is gone, he asks me to guest host, and I just love That's doing awesome. it. awesome. Rich is great. I love doing it. I mean, you just... You got to love the man uh, who just, you know, who knows your values, uh, knows who you are, gives you an unbelievable opportunity when I think probably other people wouldn't. And so I just, I wanted to start my own show. I didn't know how to do it. I got a a group of guys, three guys uh, who are freshly out of college, who know software and technology, because I don't. Yeah, Um, same. You know, I put the studio together here, you know, they put a logo. I did the show right before I came on with you uh, today. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 12.30 Pacific to 1.30 Pacific. You know, it's grassroots. We've got four sponsors right now just trying to trying to move forward. And then I also, uh, you know, a buddy of mine, Kevin Connolly, who uh, owns a company called APM. It's a podcasting network, uh, essentially. Uh, we're going to start. We just I essentially just sold one. My life story. It's, uh, we're calling it Bust. And it's my testimonial. It's, that's it. It's just 13 episodes of my story. No holds barred, unvarnished. We think we really can help a, a lot of people with it. And then when we go into season two and season three, you know, I'm going to reach out to people who maybe have been in similar situations that I have in all genres of sports. And some of them have gotten through it and can be success stories. And some of them are still fighting it. And we want to be able to be there to be helpful in a way. And we're going to call it, we're going to transition into it and call it the, the Lighthouse Podcast because that's, as Fantastic. you know, that's yeah. what we become. Yep. Nice, buddy. That's so great. What does football mean to you now? Oh, I think it's just one of the greatest things in, that's ever <laughs> ever been made. Uh, gave me everything. Unfortunately, it's caused a lot of people a lot of pain. But I also don't think those that have gone through these struggles would have given it up for anything. You know, I think a lot of times we just want to be informed. Like, if the NFL knew about what this does to our brains, I, I believe I'm living with CTE, like a lot of my brothers are. And there are a lot of brothers out there that are dying. Vincent Jackson just recently and after the Super Bowl. And I don't know why that one hit me so hard, but, um, you know, the NFL's not going to do anything, and neither is our union. So it's going to have to be us. Will you let your kids play? No. No, my son's not going to play football. He's going to be 6'9", so I'm, I'm, I'm going to give him the rock. I'm going to give him the rock, either to throw it on a mound or to there put it go. in the hoop. All right? There That's what go. I'm going to do. Nice. But whatever he wants to do. If he wants to be a dancer or be a construction worker or a fireman, which is what he wants to be right now as a fireman and a construction worker. So, you know, by all means. You know, when you watch the game today, you see these young quarterbacks out there who are kind of almost carbon copies of the quarterback. You are fast, athletic, but can throw the ball downfield. Do you ever 
see yourself out there now, you know, playing in this era where it's very much different. Protect the quarterback. I forgot. I forgot just, I've been told for how long, how bad I was that I haven't looked. In this past couple years, uh, I've looked at old film and highlights and stuff. The game against Indianapolis, my fifth game of the year against Peyton, dude, I outdueled him like crazy. I threw touchdown. I threw this one from like rolling out to my left, Patrick Mahomes style, like flipped it up to, I mean, I was astonished when I watched it play. I'm like, holy shit. You know, why have you believed everybody who has no merit in all this for so long? So I love football. I talk about it all the time. I, I wouldn't be able to do the job I do now working with Sirius XM and ESPN and and hosting Rich's show um, if I didn't love football and I love talking about it. But I'm also not, you know, I don't wear blinders either. Like I'm honest about my assessment with how the NFL handles stuff and the NFLPA and I'm not, you know, the propaganda machine isn't doesn't affect me anymore. So I, that's not lost on me, but I, I love what the game does for people. That brings leadership out. It allows us to have real, honest conversations. And we've watched the political landscape over the last two years, three years with Colin Kaepernick and everything just, I mean, you and I have a, a really unique experience being arrested as criminals, like real criminals. Mm, real and criminals. I didn't feel for once a fear for my life, ever. But any man, woman of color who gets pulled over or engaged with the police, there's an honest-to-God fear that they could die that night. And that's that's the white privilege that we talk about. Yeah, I, I get it. Very well put, Ryan. You know, if you could do this all over again, if you could go back and talk to 21-year-old Ryan Leaf, what would you tell him? It's going to hurt like hell, man, but you're going to be okay, and you're going to be a better man for it. That's exactly what I would What would you do differently? What would you do differently? The only thing differently is I would treat people better. That's the only thing I think I could, you know, I could have still been the asshole and been unsuccessful and mishandled things, but, you know, I just treated people so poorly, I think is the, is the bottom line in all this. Are but, you better with that today? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, the moment I walk into a room now and when I walk up to somebody, I ask them their name. Everybody always wants to talk to me, like, Ryan, so great to meet you, and I just immediately stop. I'm like, well, what's your name? Because they don't hear that from athletes and stuff like that because we're all such narcissists, Right. So that's like I've, I've practiced that. Like when I walk into a room, I make it about the other person and I ask them how they're doing or what's going on in their life. And, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to fill you in with my life. You know, I love my life, but you're usually there to listen to me speak or, or something. And, and so I want to hear what's going on with you and I want to know your name. That's changed. I could care less back in the day, you know, what who you were or what you were. And if you were a pretty girl, the only thing I cared about it was whether or not I could take you home. You know, that's that was it. What's next for you, Ryan? Be the best dad I can be. That's first and foremost. It's the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> Love him so much. And then I just want to continue to to help people. I found that in the pandemic. Um, not being able to travel around the country and speak because of COVID. I, it's finally opening up. I got my vaccine uh, finalized yesterday. I'm traveling to Nashville at the end of May and then to West Virginia, two of the, you know, Tennessee and, and West Virginia, along with Kentucky, three of the largest states have been hit so ravagely with opiates. I'm going to go speak in, in those two venues back in public, which is huge uh, for me. Just I didn't realize how much a difference that made in my mental health, giving back like that. It makes a difference. Yep. I can tell you from personal experience, speaking about opioids, it keeps you honest. It's therapeutic, at least for me. It's therapeutic. And, bro, you've got a, an amazing story to tell. And hearing it come from you, it will resonate with people. You know, thanks for joining today, Ryan. I, it's been a pleasure, privilege speaking with you. I love what you're doing, man. You've spread a lot of Remind me a lot of Ellen DeGeneres in that when I was in prison, just like spreading like positivity out there, oh, at least to the masses. And so, hey, I'm faking it just it. like everybody else. Thank you, man. Hey, everyone out there, I need you to be sure and subscribe to Ryan's podcast, The Ryan D. Leaf Show on the Believe Podcast Network. That's B L E A V. As well as YouTube. As well as YouTube. I believe you can get the audio version, but on, uh, on YouTube, you actually get the video version too. So it's, it's, it's fun. It's a good group of guys. Fantastic. Ryan, I can't thank you enough, buddy. Come back sometime. Hey, thank you. Anything you ever need, you just holler. All right? Best of luck to you, bud. Cheers.
charges. Sharing our run-ins with the off charges. Athletes, entertainers, and ballers. Charges. Every celebrity ain't flawless. Charges. We came a long way from living lawless. Charges. Sharing our run-ins with the off charges. Athletes, entertainers, and ballers. Charges. Every celebrity ain't flawless. Charges. We came a long way from living lawless. Charges. Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.